Welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer, where you'll hear leading professionals share expert advice on how to grow your business and sell it for maximum profitability. If you want to learn lawyer-proven strategies for building and exiting your business, then this is the podcast for you. Your host, J.P. McAvoy, is a business lawyer, college professor, and best-selling author who has been assisting clients start, grow, and sell their businesses for millions of dollars for over 15 years. Will yours be the next? Now here's your host, J.P. McAvoy. Hi, and thanks for joining us. On today's show, we've got James Burney, who's a partner specializing in Web3 at law firm Gunner Cook. It's the largest Web3 specialist law firm in the UK and the first major UK law firm to officially accept payment in crypto assets that offices in the UK, Germany, and New York. Here's my conversation with James. James, thanks so much for joining us here today. I guess, well, you're in the UK. Where exactly are you located today? I'm actually physically in Eastbourne, which is outside London. It's where people from London tend to go to retire. So I'm kind of living in the old folks home of the UK, which is the place to be. I love it. Yes, the place to be. That's uh, very much like our, you know, like uh, our Florida or uh, all all of our uh, elderly snowbirds that end up residing in Florida. So uh, that's good for our audiences in both of those locations they'll enjoy and throughout the world. Thanks for joining us here today. Happy to be speaking with you because... uh, of all the questions and all the discussion that we're getting with, with respect to crypto and Web3, the world is a, is, a, is a new, is not. Is that not the case? And we're going to continue to see change going forward, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And what's been interesting from our perspective is we're seeing a shift between different countries, particularly in the light of, of FTX. So, And what's been reassuring about FTX is the attitude of regulators globally we've seen in terms of how to deal with it. Because one of the conversa- conversations we've been having have been along the lines of, the sorts of issues FTX have are traditional regulatory and legal questions which regulators are used to dealing with, and therefore it's within their comfort zone. There is nothing particularly special or magical about what happens in FTX from a regulatory perspective. And what's been quite interesting is we've been, I mean, we've been assisting, for example, in Mauritius drafting with the regulator of drafting their rules around crypto assets. We are getting other requests from other regulators wanting to do the same thing. And we're seeing an interesting group of countries turn up because you've got traditional countries who have always tried to be pro-crypto. So you've had things like Cayman, the Beaver, I've always put up a very pro-crypto pitch. We've seen other countries who've been relatively anti-crypto. For example, China has, has always been a difficult place for crypto firms to trade in. And what we're seeing at the moment is the countries in the middle are coming off the bench. So these are jurisdictions you wouldn't necessarily think of. And the sort of approach they want to take is a relatively grown-up and friendly approach and they don't want to get sort of, you know, a company has gone bad and what's wrong with the regulator type feel to it. But equally, they do want some innovation in it. And it's kind of tentative steps to try and find out the way forwards. And one of the biggest issues they have is this is a new and quickly evolving industry. And therefore, you know, how fast can they get upskilled and not be able to deal with it in a, in a proper and grown manner, which is what they want to achieve in an industry which isn't always the easiest for people to follow? Yeah, I like the way you're describing that too. It, uh, it seemed to be at least many jurisdictions are looking to do it in a grown-up way. Uh, they understand it's a, it's a nascent is industry, but it's one that's here and, and appears as though it's one to stay. And so they're looking at the best ways of managing that or, as we're describing now, regulating that. What would be some of the general principles that you see for the, you know, for the mature, for the more favorable jurisdictions that you see evolving? So if we were to discuss basic principles uh, or you know for people to think of how this is likely to evolve what are some of the rec- regulatory schemes we can expect to see 
So broadly speaking, there, there are basically three things from a lawyer's perspective to, to look out for. And then there's the fourth, which is the joker factor. The first one is AML and KYC. That's the laws on which you're based. When you hear people structuring offshore, those are the rules which they want to comply with. And the issue there you have is you have a wide range of approaches being taken. So in the UK, it's a very high bar to get that. And this puts a lot of people off. In other places, it's easier. And in some countries, there's virtually nothing there. And it's about getting something which your compliance department and your lawyers are happy with without actually busting the bank doing it. The second set are the securities, which for Americans is always is always a contentious area. But interestingly, you get different groups of countries tend to follow in a pack here. So Europe tends to take a certain approach. Arabic countries tend to follow Europe because effectively it's the same sorts of people in both areas. The US and Canada tends to take a particular approach. And then other countries might, might do their own thing. But, but you get this sort of grouping of countries in that respect. The third area is going to be as regards, particularly on advertising, it's about basically those rules created to stop people gaming the system. And we've seen all this before in the context of hedge funds. So if you look at the average hedge fund, they tend to be set up in the Cayman Islands, but then and then they are sold into a country from the Cayman Islands. But in order to do that, they have to comply with local laws and, and all the rest of it. And there's a plumbing which comes into the system. And we're starting to see the same with crypto assets. The fourth bit, which is the joker factor, is as regards service providers, because you can have the world's gleamiest, shiniest, most cool system on the planet from a lawyer's perspective, but if you haven't got you know, the people there to find your directors, the people there to put to do the admin, the people there to the accounting, the people there to do the banking, then the whole thing is a dead man walking. And a particular issue people are finding here is as regards banks. Traditionally, it's always been an issue. And an issue we're going to see a bit more of as regards accountants, particularly in like of FTX, the Risk appetite so in accounting firms has, has diminished, which means it's hard to get accounting used to be. And then also, of course, contract audits. So, you know, security audits, coding audits are, are the other group, which is are getting increasingly harder to put in play. So, you know, you just that was a great uh, summary, I think. For, so thanks for everybody to put it together. And you're right, as this continues to to build out, looking to see the process that they're in place, with respect to the first that you described, you know, the AML, the KYC. Again, I know it's jurisdiction dependent, but what are some of the guiding principles there? Sure. So the reason why, why I mean, there's a sort of historical quirk to the whole AML and KYC thing, which is as crypto became prominent, it was at the same time as the fifth money laundering direct was being put together in Europe. And the issue you had was because the way the European mindset works is you focus on the piece of regulation, you put it together, you put it to bed, you move on to the next piece. By virtue of, of, of an accent of timing, the focus at the time was on money laundering at the time crypto businesses were being looked at. And the stress you've had in the room is regulators have tried to leverage the money laundering rules to go beyond what they were really designed to do. And that has led to problems. So, for example, you know, money is about stopping people from laundering money. I mean, it's as simple as that, really. But they don't allow for, for example, passporting from one country to another, which is a European trick where you get licensed from one country to another. Well, I don't love that because it's not about that. In the UK, you've seen a certain stress in the room because, for example, the regulators are interested in protecting consumers. But the fifth one was about protecting consumers, about stopping money laundering. So historically, you've seen this problem which regulators have had, which is trying to protect people, but not having the relevant tools to do so. What we're seeing at the moment are regulators being given the relevant tools and therefore, money laundering, we would expect in the next couple of years, is going to be put back into its box as being about money laundering, and the new tools come in. And to give examples, 
you know, Dubai has come up with its own specific uh, cryptocurrency legislation to stop conduct business. Kazakhstan has done the same. The UK is taking its own approach, and you've got MICA in Europe. They've taken different approaches, and what you're seeing between the regulators, there's a lot of overlap, and there's what's your specialty. So if you take Europe, for example, MICA was premised originally on equities and the big sign, your ability to move from one country to another. Kazakhstan has got traditionally a huge mining presence that might well influence what they do if you look at the consultation paper. In the UK, a lot of the drivers about being a gold standard because the idea is if you're business in the UK, you're taken seriously as a grown-up player. And a lot of this is about hitting bigger businesses which can achieve that. US is about the size of the US, effectively. So if you want to play in the US, you know, it, it spends a lot to make them out lots, effectively, the US. You can't go there on the shoestring, but equally, there's a lot of Americans and they've got plenty of cash to spend on it, so you can make them out of doing it. The UK is more of a shoestring type place in the sense that there's a push towards innovation. There's more of a sympathetic environment around startups, but then the UK market is only the size it is, if you see what I mean. So you tend to want to move into another jurisdiction afterwards. Looking for that expansion, right? Yeah. So, okay. So we understand the AML side to a certain degree. People on the internet and now making use of crypto are constantly suggesting that it's anonymous, but that's certainly not the case. When we talk about KYC, again, jurisdiction, but what, what are the privacy concerns? What are the requirements going to be to, you know, to know, to know your client, to know who you're dealing with on a go forward basis? So there's an intrinsic philosophical issue here, which is the money laundering rules were created quite a while ago. Money laundering exists despite of those rules. The philosophy of the people at the time the, those rules were created, which is you'd only hide your identity if you were dodgy. So when I, as a lawyer, for example, bring on a client, I need a passport, I need a proof of uh, address, I need a whole lot of documentation about my client. I don't really care about it, but I have to have it. And if you don't give it to me, the way the rules are written is assumed you must be dodgy because you won't give me that information. What we've seen since then is a sea change because people can steal each other's identities. People actually might have legitimate reasons not to give this form of data, but that is not built within the rules. So when you start to look at this, you have this fundamental problem, which is the rules are not fit for purpose if you're going to take the view that privacy has to be important. And that's why when you get in the concept of DeFi, these platforms trying to go out there and go, trust in us, we'll do the KYC and AML. In a philosophical, in one sense, you could go, well, they've done it, so as that we can rely on it. But no, actually, from a lawyer's perspective, you can't rely on it because the rules are, no, you have to take responsibility yourself. So you've got some intrinsic issue in the room. And I think it's going to take an entire new generation for a cultural shift, effectively, to start to dislodge that. It's also going to take those in the community are going to have to operate in a way, which means that they earn the trust of the regulators that they actually want to do it. And there's going to be an even more interesting debate, which is at what, for some point, are regulators going to come out and say that using some of these is okay? And then involves a regulator green lighting and technology, which is not something regulators traditionally do. So we're a long way from, from kind of the ideal which those in the crypto community will have. But then again, on the other side, you know, fundamentals are being shaken. And again, this is going back to the FTX's shaken fundamentals. Because a fundamental, because one of the issues around DEXs is they tend not to do KYC and AML. So, from a regulatory perspective, you have a fundamental issue. They are not complying. But if FTX had been a DEX, which is you could see in all the assets, it may not have gone insolvent. So, we're moving away from a debate of do we or do we not comply with KYC to a debate of which is more important, financial robustness or satisfying KYC requirements. And that's a lot trickier for people, for people to go. Just comply with the rules because you comply with the rules and if you don't, you must be dodgy. 
So there is a massive question mark being created in the room here. And it's going to come down to quite a philosophical discussion as to which side of the bench you want to sit on. But the traditional people who put this together, it would never occur to them why you wouldn't want to disclose your information. And that's the first hurdle which has to be overcome. That's right. There's a disconnect that's occurred there with the, the crypto community and, as you say, traditional regulators. Well, how does decentralization come into play here? So, so okay. Yeah, decentralization. I mean, now, to be a regulator, the regulator needs a party which is it is able to enforce its, yeah. its judgments against. Uh, to the extent that uh, projects are decentralized, well, is it even possible? And how is that going to impact things? Yeah, so that, that's quite interesting. I mean, people... The decentralization argument runs along the lines of we're decentralized, therefore we're outside the law. That is nonsense. It was tried to the internet when people went, the internet is not in any jurisdiction. No, every single country, if you come outside of everything, you come into everything. So if you're generally decentralized, you comply with every country law of every country in the world, including North Korea, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, any country on the planet, and you're going to have to apply for that. And we've had had a client once who actually literally got an opinion for every country in the world for their project because they want to be seen as truly decentralized. But decentralized here is not about reducing your legal risk. It's about kicking it straight up into the air because you're now everywhere rather than no, rather than any single jurisdiction which you can plan towards. Then you get the group of, is it legal if they don't know who I am? argument, which is the Agatha Christie dead body in the room, which if no one knows who committed the murder, murder becomes legal. And you're sitting there going, I'm afraid murder is still illegal. They just don't know who the murderer is. That doesn't mean that they've got away with it in the sense of legally they're now above the law. It's just we don't know who the murderer is yet. So that doesn't really work as a principle. That being said, decentralization has a lot of benefits. It's more robust. It works. So you've got that whole language. So it's definitely positive in the room. And then lastly, the, the only thing I'll just pick up in is, is the term regulator, which is quite an interesting term, because when people talk about regulator, they think SEC, they think FCA, but there's actually a whole lot of soft regulators out there. So you take a bank. Banks will do, want to do KYC and AML on the people using their banking infrastructure. They will not give banking support to projects which they feel are intrinsically illegal. That is a soft form of regulation. So when you look at decentralization, who is going to upload a bank account? Who's going to operate it? Can you open up a bank account? So we as a law firm accept payments in crypto because for some of these decentralized organizations, as a matter of principle, do not want to open up a bank account because as soon as they do, they must be centralized because someone's opened the bank account. And then the last thing, which, which is always an entertaining one, is again, you know, when you say you're decentralized, that, that's an easy thing to claim. But if you're saying that you're the CEO of a decentralized company, how are you reconciling those two statements? And that becomes quite an open thing. And what are you trying to achieve at the end of the day? If you take DAOs, we get people who go, I want a DAO because I want to give governance rights to my clientele. Fine. But you could have a straight old-fashioned company and go, whoever votes will do what they want to do. Not a DAO, it's just a company and you just do what you're told. So, you know, the whole DAO thing is, is what are you trying to achieve? Where are you trying to get to? And it's more a question of philosophically, what are we trying to achieve here than building infrastructure rather than a sort of, we're now decentralized because I clicked a button. Because effectively, you know, whoever thinks decentralization is ever hasn't watched Star Wars, Star Wars is an entire galaxy. Well, we're not the entire galaxy because we're just a human race. So we're centralized on Earth. Actually, we're only centralizing those people using blockchain on the Earth. Actually, we're only centralized on the token holders within that blockchain on the Earth. So I'm afraid we're already centralized. The question is um, how centralized effectively. So it becomes a sort of line as to how far you want to go. That's a great way of uh, of putting it. And yeah, you know, sort of humorously, we are we are centralized, 
And I'm constantly having a conversation with those that suggest they aren't as to what they actually are then. You mentioned DAOs. Let's get into even, you know, so someone's trying to structure a decentralized DAO. What is the, uh, and I don't think they frequently understand the concept, but what is the choice of entity that you advise uh, for them to initially begin the structuring of that DAO? Okay, so you've got three basic options. Option one is corporate entity with some smart contracts down the side. That was the old-fashioned DAO. That's how it started to set up. They tend to be centered around the BVI. It's a common place for that. You're simply a contract, and that company says, we'll do what the what the contract has to do. We might call the company administrator because it sounds slightly less offensive, but that is a marketing ploy. The second option is the foundation. Foundations were originally created in places like Switzerland for charitable purposes. They don't necessarily have a shareholders, but they still have directors. The Cayman Islands is coming off the back of that. And effectively, you're seeing a new concept, which is around the idea of, of the idea there's no shareholders. Therefore, it must somehow be a DAO, but they're still directors of the DAO. So we're sort of nearish there. And then you get those who simply go, I don't exist until the entire time they don't exist. And they've just got a series of smart contracts at home for the best. That's how you get to lose your house because effectively what you've got there is you've got a collective. Everyone in the collective could be held liable. And this is where if it goes bust, if it goes wrong, if it gets sued, every single person within that could be held personally responsible for that because you've just lost all your protections and all your wrappings. What's quite interesting in the UK at the moment is there's a move towards getting DAOs recognised as a legal contract in the UK. And one of the interesting questions being raised throughout that entire process is, is what do we want to achieve when we want to have a DAO? Because you're getting very different philosophies and meanings by different people between those people who just want to say, I want a DAO because I want to stay outside US securities law. May or may not work as a strategy, but that's their entire plan. To those who have a more fundamental philosophical thing along the lines of giving power back to a group of people. But I think the key point here is to start off with what you're trying to build and then get a wrapper. Don't obsess with the DAO in and of itself because effectively what you're doing with that. And then the last interesting point which we're looking at is contracting with DAOs. Because DAOs come at a cost. And it goes back to the chocolate bar example. So, you know, people go, I am decentralized. And you go, great. And you go, let's have a contract. I'm now contracting with this amorphous organization. Fantastic. So we can't negotiate. We can't sign anything because they refuse point blank to sign because they keep telling me they don't exist. So we enter into the chocolate bar scenario, which is I go to the corner shop. I buy a chocolate bar. I give the guy 50p. He gives me a chocolate bar. That is a legally binding contract to buy a chocolate bar. This is how you end up contracting with the DAO. So effectively, you create your terms and conditions when you contract with the DAO. The DAO will do things and actions. So it might involve clicking on your website or, or doing a thing or whatever the members do. By virtue of doing that, they've agreed to your terms and conditions. Those terms and conditions you're going to slant to be in your favor as much as possible because unfortunately you've now got to the point where you can't trust them. You, you can't sue them or do anything. So it has to be stretched in your favor because you can't really go after them effectively. They can only come after you. But they can't do anything about that because they refuse to acknowledge their own existence. So they won't negotiate anything. So you enter into these very one-sided deals whenever you enter into a DAO because effectively you're... you're negotiating against someone who doesn't exist. And as a lawyer, you're always going to protect your clients. So as a result, you end up in that kind of box, effectively. And that's why, you know, that's one of where, where DAOs do come at a cost. So the question then is, philosophically, you know, is that a cost you want to bear in order to run your model? Yeah, is it worthwhile to do so? And what type of certainty or uncertainty, really, are you going to have by virtue of this chosen 
of, of the way you've chosen to do business. Yeah, certainly, certainly we're seeing a lot of that. Interesting that uh, jurisdictions continue to be chosen. I think there's jurisdiction shopping, and this will continue to evolve. I mean, this is just, as we said earlier, a nascent industry, and people will continue to figure best practices and rely upon people such as yourself and myself to determine what that actually looks like. What kind of things are you seeing? You were involved with the first ICO in the UK. Are you seeing much, you know, with respect to IDOs or uh, you know any type of offerings at this stage? Yeah, I mean, we're in a less bizarre scenario because everyone tells me how we're in a crypto winter, and I've never been so busy at any point, effectively. What we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing people move towards safes. Safes are generally end badly, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not a fan of safes at all. I think there's an element of copy and paste the freebie document on the internet, which is nice, but no one's thought it through. No one knows what they're doing, and it sort of hits endless walls as it goes past. And also, it doesn't always fit with the fund objectives, which is another thing just to bear in mind, because if your fund is to invest in tokens, you then can't really give them equity. So it comes at a cost, but people start moving towards wanting equity along with their tokens. There's still a solid trade going on in tokens, but we're now being moved towards a more greater formalization as to what it is you should say about your token when you sell it. So in both Mauritius and in MICA, there are now draft sections in terms of what is expected to be in the white paper and expected to be in the terms. The UK is going to do a similar thing, which is also going to put out what is in there. And I think over time, what we're going to end up with internationally is a sort of list of everything which needs to be included for every single thing to move forwards. And there's a really interesting uh, broader point here in my mind, which is what the fundraising gap is, which the ICO fulfills. So if you want to do an IPO, 30 million quid. If you want to do bonds, quite a lot of cash. In my mind, the ICO is a natural fit for the person who wants to fundraise up to 300,000 uh, 300, pounds, UK pounds, so 300,000 US dollars. That's the natural fit for it. Effectively. And it is that short-term uh, high risk investment effect which is coming in and that's why i think we'll continue to have a model to play and what we don't want is we don't want the rules to get so onerous that they become effectively a full-on prospectus because if you become a full-on prospectus then you might as well do an old-fashioned equity and it locks those firms outside the market the glorious thing about the ico is that allows little firms to hire small amounts of money to get things off the ground and then move on to bigger things rather than sell their equity too cheap Right. Yeah. And it's just, you're, you're citing $300,000. It's just, I guess the cost of entry, the barriers to entry are too significant to do otherwise, right? Or more traditional IPOs. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you've got to draft for a full IPO and all the rest of it, it's, it's the cost of the lawyering, the cost of, of all the background. It, it's that. I mean, you know, th- there was a time when literally it was just a white paper and a set of T's and C's and you're good to go. I'm not saying that's the, the best answer, but there's a sort of halfway house between the two. So when you look up things coming out, you know, the, the length of, of the rules is, is Two or three sides of A4 list of requirements. That that is eminently achievable, if you see what I mean, at a reasonable cost. That is what you want to achieve. So there's something there, but it, so it's not a total joke. But equally, you're not killing the project through overlawing because bluntly, lawyers come at a cost, and that's not always helpful. That's right. It's uh, as I said earlier, oftentimes a barrier. And what we're finding is that a lot of people involved in this space are choosing not to concede law legal. They're willing to just assume the risks. And they don't extend to, they understand the extent to which they're taking on risk, risk, uh, particularly when we're, if they're doing something without a wrapper, the way we described earlier. What type of risk would you see? So the, the shift that's occurred, I know you've written on, uh, you know, what's going on with staking now as well, right? So interesting to see some of the, uh, recent comments by Gary Gensler and how he intends or, uh, imagines the SEC is going to regulate crypto, all crypto, but blockchain or about Bitcoin by the sound of things. What is the treatment of staking 
going to be for these projects on a go-forward basis? So staking is quite an interesting one because first of all, you've got to work you've got to work out for which form of staking you're in because you've got validator staking, you've got DeFi staking, and they're entirely different as models. It's, it's, it's misleading to stick the two together. Now, let's break them down. I appreciate you saying that. Let's break them down and deal with one uh, at a time. So we'll just talk about from a validating perspective. So let's, and let's use Ethereum as an example. So the thing about validators, so in and of itself, staking is not a regulated activity. I mean, outside the US effectively, in and of itself, staking is not a regulated activity. You wouldn't need any license to do a chain like that. The issue you have through in the UK and, and other parts potentially of Europe is whether it falls in definition of something called a collective investment scheme, which is a, point, a Ponzi lawyer way of saying the word fund. And basically, if you get stuff together, you pool it, you manage it, and you give a return, then you've got the potential for a fund in there, which would be a security. And that's why some of the more mature models are effectively people lending investors the software the investor runs the whole thing and therefore you come outside the definition by running that way so it's about setting up in the right way now there are issues there still with things like for example liquid staking where you put it together and you get a token to represent you do other things with that tends to start to fall within the definition of collective scheme more strongly and there's an interesting open question here because the intellectual thinking behind a staking company is somewhat different qualitatively between thinking of a fund manager. As far as the staking providers are concerned, they are simply running a piece of software in the way you would any other super potter. They do not think they are making investment decisions. Yet the problem you've got is the way these rules are sometimes drafted. I mean, they're so broad that they would capture it anyway. And that creates interesting slight nuances between different countries so, for example, in Germany, sometimes they look more at the intention of the people participating, whereas in the UK, it's more about whether it's managed as a whole and with the level of control of the people participating, which might sound like a sort of niche thing, but actually can lead sometimes to slightly different outcomes for different people on, on the system. So that's where you're getting it. I mean, I think there's a good argument for bringing staking outside of regulation altogether because it's inherently this is a good thing. And the risk profile is not the same as it would be if you were buying NFTs or something like that. It's, it's inherently has a positive thing. The threat of staking and the philosophical argument here is staking versus banking. Because at the end of the day, in both models, you have an asset, you lock it up and you get more stuff off the back of it. And the risk profile is interestingly different because with a bank, your risk profile is on the solvency and the ability of the bank to meet its interest payments. And with staking, the issues as regards the ability of the blockchain protocol to continue functioning and whether the software operates properly. So it's a different risk profile, but with a similar outcome. And both are at the lower end of risk for the industries in which they're involved at. So if you put cash in a bank, you consider that a low risk thing to do. And equivalently in crypto, if you do staking, that's less high risk than if you're buying NFTs and the like. So there is a philosophical question here as to given the similarities of the two, whether one will want to tolerate the other and how they will fit together. And as a user, whether you want to diversify your counterparty risk to a blockchain risk for a similar type of product on the market. And that people are not really talking about in a mature way at the moment, but I can see uh, the arguments for wanting to have some of both because it is a similar investment in terms of the feel of it, but actually behind the scenes, it's a somewhat different uh, set of risks you're relying on and risk diversification would suggest you should do some of both. Interesting thought, you say, where you have to, I mean, do you think the banks are going to play ball? This is, it presents a real threat to them because there's only, there's only so much capital to go around. And, 
you know, the second model, as you just described, is one that's going to reduce the market for, for the banks. Again, going back to Gary Gensler, he's already warned banks about t- taking on the taking on the assets themselves. So I think that from that follows that the banks actually won't be involved. So who ends up actually winning in the in the long run in the end game here? Well, you're the same thing. So, for example, Zodia has come out of Standard Chartered. That is a bank beginning to offer more crypto custody type services. So you're going to see banks moving into the sector more, and some people will get reassurance from that because effectively they've got old fashioned banking regulation behind them. You're going to get a new group of people turn up who will be, you know, people like Coppen and people like Bitpanda will turn up. And they're effectively, they are a new form of doing things. But new competition is not in and of itself necessarily a bad thing. It's just more competition. I mean, there is an argument that there are too few banks in the world and there should be more banks in order to give you a more robust system. And if you believe in decentralization, then the more the better because it's more decentralized. And What's been really interesting as a regulatory lawyer is you see a global shift all the time towards centralization, decentralization, and recentralization. So there was a time when people thought that the that the whole way forwards was to centralize risk between central players. Those central players would manage the risk, and that was the way forwards. You then have Lem Brothers. Lem Brothers pushes us towards decentralization, so we get it reversed to what before. But this is not recent. This has been happening since time more that we've seen a move back and forth and back and forth. There was a time with the Scottish banking system, if you don't mind going off piece slightly, where the H Scottish Bank had its own currency and it was a fully decentralized model. That was then brought together and there was a central currency across all banks. You've got the British pound note and that's how it went in that way. That's moved from decentralization to centralization because we considered better because things were less likely to go insolvent. So there is no good answer here. But what you get is you get a reaction. And at the moment, the reaction is away from centralization to decentralization. Neither is the right answer, neither is perfect, but with something going on decentralization, the move will be back towards centralization. And this is just going to go on forever, effectively, because neither are right. And all we can hope for is somewhere in the middle where you try and get the best of both worlds. And therefore, what you'd like to build is an infrastructure which tries to take the best of both knowing that there's a simple trade-off here, which is the more risk is centralized between big organizations who've got the power to look at it, the less likely they are to go insolvent or go wrong. But if they do go insolvent and go wrong, the effects on the economy is far greater than with the decentralized model. So it's about bringing that all together. And, you know, just, just to throw in one last wild card, you know, if you take Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers is not necessarily go insolvent because it went bust. Lehman Brothers, there was a lack of confidence in the bank. If Lehman Brothers had held all of its assets using a stablecoin and the regulator being able to see which assets Lehman Brothers has held, that regulator could have come out and gone, Lehman Brothers is completely solvent. We've looked at the books. It is fine. At which point the panic may have stopped and Lehman Brothers might still exist. And I think you've got to support a technology which might have avoided something like Lehman Brothers. That has days to it and it's worth exploring. But it doesn't mean, you know, but it, you know, things, things, it's so new, if you see what I mean. I mean, shares are the other interesting one. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Do you know what a share in a company is? Is a big question. Because most people don't. Uh, it's not voting rights. It's not ownership. You don't, you know, a share in a company is a percentage of the proceeds in the event of liquidation, and that percentage might be nothing. Shares were banned in the UK for being a high-risk investment because they're highly speculative. You couldn't touch them. You didn't know where they were from. There were a whole lot of scams. And that's looked suspiciously like the press you get around crypto assets. You just wrote out crypto for the word shares, and you've got exactly the same uh, press as you had around the South Sea double in the UK. 
The response was to make shares illegal in the UK. And for the next 100 years, effectively, the UK effectively fell back compared to other markets because we didn't have shares in other countries teamed ahead when they did. And there was a massive reversal and shares would walk back into the UK as a concept because effectively we were losing to other economies out there. And I think the interesting thing from the US is, is a lot of the debate feels uh, to an outsider like me, like the debate on shares way back when. And OK, you can legalize everything in the US, fine, but other countries will move forwards. And then there will there be the moment which goes, actually, we need to bring this back into the US because we can't ignore it. It's going to go ahead anyway. Do we want to sort of become part of it again? Yeah, James, I think you're hitting it on the head uh, to the extent that uh, you know it looks as though the U.S. will become even more unfavorable to do business. Uh, business will go elsewhere. And as you say, that pendulum swings back and forth. There'll be a determination made that it's time to get back into that game. You mentioned uh, stable coins. Uh, it's interesting as well, I think, uh, of you know nation states and banks attempting to create their own uh, cryptocurrencies as well. Do you think that people will will want to use a CBDC? What do you think the uptake of uh, the products that are now being uh, developed by the banks and nation states are going to look like? I mean, it's always pitched as a battle of CBDC versus private crypto assets. I don't see it in those terms. I think CBDCs will be used. Let me just give, give a sort of another one. So you want to move money from bank A to bank B. The original legal system, which came into effect around moving money from bank A to bank B, was created at a time before the internet where people literally put the money in a wheelbarrow and they took the wheelbarrow from one bank to another bank and they deposited it in the other bank and that's how bank money moved from bank A to bank B. This is why you have a settlement period of a couple of days when you move months across to allow that wheelbarrow to get going across the streets. Now, we no longer do that. But what you do have is a model where banks have kept this. And what's really happening at this point is the bank is keeping the money. The bank gets paid interest on that money. And therefore, it is an additional set of money which goes to the banks, not to the consumer, which is the bit where the wheelbarrow goes across. It's actually interest being earned because there was little incentive to update the rules when you can just get paid interest instead. With crypto assets and a CBDC, that money might move across in 10 minutes. That would speed up settlement times. Now, you might tell me that this is a nonsense because you could speed up anyway. And the answer is yes. But unfortunately, we need an excuse. And the excuse here is a blockchain-based currency. Other things you can achieve here is better settlements. If you're buying and selling um, stuff on an exchange, the ability to have real time, know where the money is, move costs. You could sell tokenized securities for CBDCs in a way which increases settlement and makes it easier to make it faster. So I'm not really pitching CBDCs in some sort of philosophical end of the world type, it's all changed type moment. What I'm saying is there are certain use cases where it is very, very useful for the CBDC to exist. You do have the dark side. So for example, you, you know, the ability of people spend stuff on, the ability that, and depending on your philosophy, you might have a different view. So seeing what people spend on, you know, What's quite funny, people say that, people go, completely right, we should do that. It stops money laundering. It stops the bad guys taking the money. And if another government says that, go, this is government surveillance, absolutely outrageous. They can see our every move. And it's the same sense. And it simply comes down to your politics and what you make of the person. Got it. Whether you trust them or not, effectively. But you can have that level of surveillance also with a private currency. It's no different. People tend to trust private companies more than governments because they do. I'm not going to go into that if you see what I mean. And that becomes the other philosophical part of it. So... I think there will be CBDCs. I think there are specific things you can point to where they will make life easier and people like their lives be made easier, so they will do that. 
I don't think they're going to replace traditional private currencies either, if you see what I mean. But I think there's a different market, a different sun, different group of people who want to do it. Not everybody gives a monkey's about holding a Bitcoin. It's as simple as that. Some people just want to be able to move their uh, US dollars from one place to another. And if it's done 10 minutes rather than three days, fantastic. Call a CBDC. I don't know what CBDC is, but I can get my dollars from one bank account to another. That's what I want to do because I want to buy McDonald's at the end of the, uh, today. Yeah, I think I think you're quite right. And it's also who's going to make it easiest for me, right? Uh, it's the it's the the on ramp. I think is going to that, that's the biggest barrier right now. I think it will continue to be so. So I couldn't agree with you more in that regard. I think there'll be a, a general distrust of, of the CBDC. I think if uh, people are more sophisticated have an alternative that why not use a trustless, you know, system where they don't have to rely upon, uh, you know, a bank or some third party where they know they can actually send it to uh, themselves or control the process itself. But that's, as I say, as things evolve, we'll continue to watch. For the most part, most people won't be educated to the things that we're discussing here, won't really care, as you say, just great, move it quickly at the best price for me, you know, with the least amount of hassle. So I think I think that's what we'll end up seeing with regards to those. What about NFTs? We get uh, turn the conversation to that a little bit because uh, just watching to think about how things have evolved there. And as I say, NFT, I'm, I'm not just talking monkey pictures, but uh, mm-hmm. um, certainly we've seen a great amount of value be created through these and, a, and, an, and an industry emerge. Uh, for NFTs themselves, what do you think uh, the future holds for them? NFTs are interesting because, you know, the sorts of people you have who are regulating crypto assets tend to come from traditional securities backgrounds. If you look at fungible tokens, I'm not saying all, but a lot of those tend to mirror investment-like type things. So they sit there and go, this feels like an investment. People are buying because they think it's going to make money. Therefore, they feel they've got a role in it. NFTs can be anything from who votes and who plays at a rock concert to membership of a club. It can be literally anything you want. So you throw this joker in the room, which is a whole lot of things which have absolutely nothing to do with investment whatsoever, are suddenly in this world of crypto. And what we've seen from a UK perspective is a sort of recognition of that. And therefore, some of the new rules coming to the UK will not apply to NFTs because the nature of the business means that they're not doing that type of thing. But what you then get is those who are involved in the old fashioned, more investment sense go, oh, if I caught an NFT, I'm outside of the law. Brilliant. We'll just make everything an NFT and bugger it. We're off to the races. Now, that will, of course, cause friction back again. So you're going to enter this debate as to what should or should not be called. And that's going to be an interesting thing over the next few years, effectively. So with the shift that occurs, you say people will look at the best way. What is the best way to actually structure it then to, to avoid that? Well, again, this, this is going back to the three the three parts. And, and you know, to, to be blunt about it, it's easy when you're not dealing with the U.S. So let's, let's part the U.S. for a side because the U.S. security debate, I think, better minds than mine can spend quite some time on it. But from a straight, uh, from a non-US perspective, you know, the first question is AML and KYC. Well, yes, you can use NFTs to launder money. So we'll fall within the local AML and KYC rules, they will tend to want to be caught as long as they can use to move value from A to B. So that will tend to apply to any other asset. So you're going to do your money laundering. The securities question then just comes down to the fact that in quite a lot of jurisdictions, there's a list of things that are securities. And if you're not on, and most, you know, things like equity, things like bonds, you kind of know it when you see it. You've got the two joker factors in the room. The first one is payment services. Most NFTs are not used for payment services. Let's park that one. It's going to be quite a novel thing to get it within that. So probably let's not worry about that one. And then the last one is the fund question, which is the one we keep coming back to. But the fundamental starting point of that one is getting a variable return linked to someone else's discretion. So if you get a fixed return or if you get no return, you tend to be fine. 
And that's why NFTs tend to generally fall outside the scope of most securities because most people with an NFT are not looking to get any form of return. They're looking access for goods and services effectively in some way, shape or form. So it tend to fall outside of that. And then the last one is going to be advertising, which again, you know, that when you look at it, you know, the people who regulate advertising, you've got the all-fast securities advertising people, they will tend to not want to get NFTs if they're not anything to do with securities. But again, if you're promising, you know, an infinite return and so on and so on, then effectively you're going to start to get people's attention. And there are old-fashioned advertising standards authorities out there who also come into play. So when you make dumb statements, they will tend to wake up at the same time. So it is a different infrastructure. It'll be lighter touch than securities. But it's the old business as well where you go, you're probably going to be fine. And the client immediately comes up with something you never thought of and something you're not fine because you never thought you could do that if you see what I mean. It's one of those sorts of ones. Yeah, we're spending time thinking of just that. What are the things that haven't been thought of yet, right? Uh, as always, there's disruption and entrepreneurs looking for a new way, a better way, and trying to take market share or however they look at the increase in the way that they're trying to increase in value, the value of their project. With these new innovative technologies what are the ways that uh, the entrepreneurs are able to protect themselves so protect themselves or come up with new ideas so what, what you've got at the moment so to take take this in terms of, of protecting yourself i mean what what you will have is, is you'll set up in a country you can pick your country you need to you'll have to have sufficient substance in that country to operate from those will be the home rules effectively and those are the ones which you'll apply with because of virtually your base the way you would do it is you set up a subsidiary usually that subsidiary will be in the relevant country and that subsidiary will sell the goods and services and that's will be how you comply with those rules the second set of the rules you apply into and for example in the uk there might be a move towards the end of the year towards increasing the definition of what is caught in there to capture people who may not have any presence in the uk but have a uk client base or uk facing to bring them in the uk licensing regime that's the second set of rules and there, effectively, you've got a couple of choices. You either, and it's about it's about a numbers game. So where is most of your money coming in? Where are you focused? Where is it coming in? And it's the cost of getting the local lawyers happy from that. And then you can go in packs. So most of Europe and the UK have the same underlying framework. So you can start that. And effectively, that's how you then grow the business organically, getting advice for each one. And as a very, very broad rule of thumb, if you get local advice from a lawyer saying it is fine and the lawyer is, is in the relatively the right area. So, and, you know, don't don't go to a sort of shipping lawyer for advice on security. So it's like kind of lawyer. They will should write a relatively sensible piece of advice which you can operate towards. And if they happen to be wrong, you can show it to the regulator. And OK, you may or may not have complied, if you see what I mean, but the regulator will read it. You've tried to do the right thing. At the end, they regulate as human beings. So if you're trying to do the right thing, you're coming at it the right way, whether the regulator agrees with you or not, there's a high chance they'll agree with you because you've hired competence advice. If they don't agree with you, they'll probably tell you to stop doing it, but you have tried to comply. So as a result, the anger level is now just dissipated because you're a guy who's just made an honest mistake. And that that's how come across so that's what it's about taking that and moving that forward and, and just going through at that kind of basis in terms of where is in the innovations that's quite an interesting one because the way i see it is you know the original blockchain is a bit like the ipad you get a massive thing everyone looks and goes wow that's amazing it's completely new never seen anything like that before you then get ripples so some of the first ripples are quite big so the you know applying smart contracts to black blockchain with ethereum that is a big innovation 
What you then get is you get smaller and smaller ripples. So the latest iPad, they move where the head jack is. No one really cares about that. We shouldn't set in front of Apple, but that's how people tend to view it. Okay, it might be slightly better, it might be slightly lighter, but you're not going to rush out to shops and necessarily buy it because it's a minor change. But what you're going to get next, which is going to be the interesting bit, is the cross-fertilization from something like uh, a traditional technology and blockchain and crypto. And you know, to give you an idea, smart contracts existed well before blockchain existed. But it's when you combine the two, you then got these huge externalities and all these new ideas. You've got other inventions out there like quantum computing and, and the like. These are new models when they come to exist. It's bringing that back together with technologies like blockchain is where the action is likely to lie because it's about taking new technologies, applying together and adding one plus one to make three. Yes, that's just it, right? One to one plus three. If you were to predict what the networks of the future look like, I mean, has it is has it been established? Is it Ethereum going to be the network of the future? Where do you think the smart contracts will, for the most part, lie? I think it's an interesting one because different people want different things. And what we've got at the moment is Ethereum is the biggest incumbent player that will always give it the market advantage. You've got people like Naos who are focused on things like security. So if you're interested in security, you might be more interested in something like that. You've got questions around user interface. You've got questions around security. You've got questions around speed. But they are finite. So the question becomes with any new layer one coming out is where is it going to fit within the ecosystem and why would you use that rather than an incumbent given that the incumbent's already got the infrastructure built on it. So I think that's going to be the interesting play. And the next play is going to be bringing it all together under one hub because you've got a new industry now until it's been nice to move from one to the other. So, you know, it's likely that people are going to want to mix and match and play around and that, that's always going to be, and that, that's the core of innovation. That's how businesses get created and move forward. So, that's going to be the next part of it. So I, I think it's going to be a question of there will be dominant players. And the question then is becomes from those dominant players, how do they all combine? How do they work together? And how do they interact? And that's going to become an industry in and of itself, effectively. And what's been interesting at the moment is you'll see new languages being created and destroyed, effectively. And again, you know, I'm no coder, but the question is which ones are, are the right ones to move forward is going to become an interesting question for the future. The other thing that's going to be interesting is I think it's going to be a huge generational shift. So, you know, I work at a law firm, a lot of, when you start up a law firm, there's the older group of lawyers, they exist in a time before internet. I remember sitting in front of lawyers who like to write everything down, they would then give it to someone, they'd want to type it up. The idea of using this horrible internet was just horrible. You got the next group with the sort of guys who use one finger to do it. Excuse me, it, was a, it was a loving thing to watch in action. You then get the generation you bang away and it's kind of eyeball popping the speed at which words generate. And then you get the innovative group who basically, if the internet goes offline for over 30 seconds, they jump from a high building because their life's now become completely pointless and meaningless. You're going to get, I think, the same with the whole crypto thing. There's going to be generation people who grow up with this. So things that we think are new and whizzy and, and all the rest of it. I've got a whole thing. I'm walking me one day. I said I did the first ICO in the UK and they'll go, what a bloody dinosaur that dates. And now I'll sit there going, oh, that hurt. So this, they're going in that direction. And I think what will be really interesting is the, the younger generations who grow up with the internet, grow up with, with something everyone can code. I think I'm going to be quite frightening when they get into this because I think a lot of the stuff which is moving forward at the moment, they'll simply go, well, no, you just do this and it's just going to go so much faster. Yeah, the speed at which it uh, is going to occur is only going to increase uh, Moore's Law. And uh, as we see this industry evolve, we do appreciate the speed at which you've gone through all the concepts with us here today. You mentioned for people that are looking for for advice, as you say, it makes sense to talk to somebody that uh, understands the issues can give you an opinion, at least that you can fall back on or keep in your back pocket. Depending on on how things evolve, it's certainly going to be a good idea to have something like that. Chase, what's the best way for people listening to reach you, find uh, find you, uh, hear more, and maybe learn more? 
Sure. So you, you can either email me. My email is james, J-A-M-E-S dot Bernie, B-U-R-N-I-E at Gunnercook, G-U-N-N-E-R-C-O-O-K-E dot com or on LinkedIn, James Bernie, B-U-R-N-I-E, F-R-S-A. That's great stuff. And thanks for spelling it that way for most people listening. And uh, we'll have all this, of course, in the show notes and everything as well. James, we really do appreciate your time on here today. I look forward to discussing these issues with you again in the future as things do continue to evolve. I love to end these shows with uh, one thing that somebody building a project, one, one, or maybe, maybe it can be more than one thing, but that best practices maybe is the best way of saying it. For those that are building, that are looking for the disruption for the waves of the future, what are some things or what's something that you could leave people with here today? So nobody loves lawyers. You look at them and you think that's very expensive. I don't want to do that. Bear in mind, if you're smart with your legal and compliance, that can become a money-making opportunity in its own right. So have a think also about how you can use this to your advantage as well as being a cost. Because if you can make the legal and compliance side make you money, that's a good thing. There you go. That's well said from one lawyer to the next. James, thanks so much for being on the show today. Look forward to next time on The Millionaire's Lawyer. Great fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Millionaire's Lawyer. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To get your business millionaire assessed and to access the wide variety of resources that we offer in addition to this podcast, go to jpmcavoy.com. That's jpmcavoy.com.